I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz. On this episode of Unfinished Biz, we chat with Neil Grimmer, a startup veteran who found his true nutritional calling through the challenges and pressure of building an organic baby food brand. Too much travel, too much work, you know, quite frankly, too much stress, not enough sleep, not enough good food, not enough of the principles that we actually were hoping to, to deliver to families across the country. As a co-founder of Plum Organics, Neil had a real success on his hands. But behind the scenes, all that hard work had taken a toll. And after selling the business to Campbell Soup, he knew his next venture needed to be rooted in better health, his own. That inspired me to start a company called Habit, which is the world's first personalized nutrition company, where we go from all the way from an at-home test, where we look at your DNA, your blood work, and your metabolism, to unlock the nutrition insights that live inside of each one of those aspects of you, all the way to a personalized food recommendation, to fresh prepared meals customized to your biology delivered to your door. Find out how Neil got to this point in his founder journey, how Habit plans to make us all healthier, and why he sleeps so much. Unfinished Biz starts now. Wayne, I think you were the first to meet with Neil, right? Yeah, I, I remember meeting them in 2010. They had come by the VMG offices to share the story around Plum, which was really revolutionizing the baby food category with a squeezable pouch as opposed to glass jars for baby food. And just really exponential growth was happening, but... For us, the concern was some supply chain dynamics that just weren't a fit. Right. But they found a, a great investor in Catterton and ultimately a very successful exit to Campbell Soup. And Neil's got an incredible track record. He started at Cliff, moved on to Plum, and now he's got this new venture in Habit. And what they're doing there is really exciting around personalized nutrition with retail today really designed to be all things for everybody and for them it's really around this concept of biohacking of consumers trying to figure out who they are as people and customizing a nutritional plan for themselves and we caught up with neil at habits headquarters in oakland oaktown <laughs> neil's gone through some pretty big transformations himself over the years you know, I found my way into business a little bit by accident. You know, back about 20 years ago, I was a punk rock musician playing in, in Berkeley, California at a club called Gilman Street. And uh, it was just a bunch of, you know, it was about 150 scrappy kids. Green Day was playing. We'd open for them periodically. And, you know, from there, I went into art school and started showing in were San Francisco. Were you vocal? Or? Yeah, what instrument? Yeah, no, I, played, I played bass. Okay. okay. I was the tall, skinny guy playing the bass. All right. You know? nice. yeah. and, um, I think I've seen some pictures with, in the with past. The, with the intense look? Yeah. I, had, I had a little intensity. I had a little, I was in it, man. I was in it when we were playing. But nice. it was, you know, honestly, it was one of the best experiences I've ever had. And, and I actually think it prepped me for being a great entrepreneur in that, you know, I, I you know, built this band, you know, created the brand for it booked a tour, 45 shows in 42 states, and we just, we just, we did it. And what was we, the name of the band? It was called Pax and Quigley. Nice. And, um, Where, where's that? What's yeah. that? Well, that so it was, it was named after a woman who was a, uh, uh, women's rights activist oh. in the, and a peace activist in the sixties. And then she, um, in the eighties, she kind of did a 180 degree 
turn started to become a sales representative for Smith and Wesson and started <laughs> teaching women how to shoot handguns. And she wrote a book called Armed and Female. And so Jeez, it was very punk rock. But, yep. you know, we've always been uh, we've always been in the fight. So anyway, but the uh, that punk rock experience actually helped me, I think, in many ways, a parallel of starting a company because, you know, you had to pull a group of people together. You had to have a point of view on the world. You brought your creativity bear to you know, bring a community together and, um, and all the logistics. I mean, literally we were silk screening t-shirts outside of the clubs, <laughs> nice. selling them for five bucks that we could get a meal after we played, you know, and right. I mean, it was just super scrappy. But at the end of the day, that's actually starting a company in my experience, both with Plum Organics and now with Habit, like you need that kind of scrappy, get it done entrepreneurial aspect. To, and what, to what year happen. was this when you were, when you oh, were gosh. silk screening? This is 1992. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's when we did our tour. And, um, and then from there, went to art school, started showing in galleries in San Francisco and New York. And, um, and just, you know, the kind of art that I was making was actually more futuristic product design. Hmm. It was, you know, pretty esoteric stuff. Like one of the pieces I made was what was called a wireless hug, where it was a couture vest. You give yourself a, a hug and it would take a, there was a computer in the back of this vest and take a snapshot of your heartbeat pressure sensor and, um, and, uh, and body temperature, and it would send it wirelessly over a hacked pager network to another vest, and it would constrict and warm in the areas of a hug, and then oh, wow. my heartbeat would tap out on your chest. And so super conceptual, that's, like that's wild. technology, yeah. human emotion, you know, kind of stuff. And, and so I was doing this artwork. Someone from Intel saw it, and we're like, oh, my God, this is amazing. We're doing a whole competition on um, technology and human emotion so I, you know, submitted my stuff. And again, bear in mind, I was doing this in, in you know, art galleries. Right. And I uh, ended up winning this Intel, this international <laughs> yeah. design competition for Intel. And it was just this huge eye-opener for me that all of a sudden I wasn't going from making art and being a cultural critic to actually making futuristic product design. So found my way to Stanford, did my graduate degree in product design there, and then um, spent about seven years at IDEO leading a lot of innovation programs for Fortune 200 companies. And what, what was the time period for IDEO when you were there? Yeah, so that was uh, roughly 2000 to 2007. Gotcha. Yeah. Any, any interesting projects that, that you developed there? Oh, we, we created the craziest things. Um, we, we actually, I developed the first touchscreen ordering system for McDonald's. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah, right. super interesting. Um, I created a quick neck tool for coronary bypass on the distal end. So, you know, that's a very manual operation. And they wanted a, a tool, a surgical tool, to be able to take a, a vein and graft it on with like a one click. So we designed things like that. I mean, it was really, really broad. I created a, a program for Mercedes. And this was back, you know, this is like early 2000s for the future of luxury in the E-class, you know, a 10 to 15 year view out. And we came up with concepts like heating and cooling cup holders, which is now in the <laughs> yeah. feature of my wife's car. Oh, wow. Nice. You know, right. I mean, it, it's just, you know, it was that kind of thing. Or it was just weird just exploring you know, all the realms of what's the future technology going to enable for, you know, in this case, it was for Mercedes, but McDonald's or anybody else that was coming in, you know, it was, it was an incredible experience. It sounds like it's a real incubation lab to be an entrepreneur. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're, you're faced with, you know, problems that you'd never imagine having to, to look at or, or deal with. And you have a skill set, which is, you know, one part art, one part mechanical engineering, one part human empathy and, mm-hmm. and ethnographic research. And so all of those things come together to help you come up with new ideas that ultimately meet people's needs, wants and desires through creative expression. So it was it was incredible. And what led you to leave IDEO? 
Well, so I had a daughter and, uh, you know, all of a sudden I went from being a designer to being a dad, uh, you know, and, and, you know, food was always central. And while I was at IDEO, I actually spent a majority of my time working with food, food clients, helping them figure out back then, you know, they had what they characterized as fun for you food. And then there was better for you, which is baked and diet versions, of the right. fun stuff. Right. <laughs> right? And the big question was, what is good for you food look like? Mm-hmm. Right. And I spent you know, better part of those seven years, you know, helping big companies trying to answer that question. And I had an epiphany, which was, it's not enough to create a healthy product. It's got to come from a healthy company. And that led me to actually spend about a year and a half leading strategy and innovation at Cliff Bar. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had my first daughter then I jumped and went to work at Cliff. And then, uh, my second daughter came on the way and, uh, all my trade craft that I was doing, you know, professionally started showing up in my kitchen personally and started coming up with concepts. We had, a, you know, one of my daughters was in daycare. The other one was, uh, was in preschool. And so, you know, we were packing healthy lunch boxes and then, you know, bacon squash at 10 o'clock at night trying to make <laughs> healthy food for our baby. And we're like, there's got to be a better yeah. way. And that was the impetus to get into the baby and kids nutrition space. That's a great transition. I mean, yeah. you know, it was what part of it was obviously incubated seeing at cliff cliff embodying some of the, yeah, the healthier eating and taking some of those concepts moving on but um what 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 drove you to take the leap to to working outside of the framework of a cliff to a, a, a kind of a your own entrepreneurial venture you know i think for me part of it cliff experience was was um was hugely impactful because i think it was the first time that i could see that a company could actually have their values so deeply rooted in things that benefit people and and planet while creating a really healthy company, right? I mean, they were one of the hottest, you know, nutrition brands in the in the United States at the mm-hmm. time. And so, you know, it gave me confidence that like if you have that really deep-seated value system that connects to people's not only their heads but their hearts, that you can actually create an amazing company from that. And I saw it real time every day at Cliff Bar. And um and I think, you know, that combined with my personal experience and being a parent and just seeing all of the, you know, the challenges of trying to be, you know, a working parent, you know, uh, both my wife and I were working and um, feeding our kids healthy food without the trade-off. And there was just no real good solution out there. And as a problem solver and a product designer, that's like, that's your playground. So all of a sudden, like, it was just like, oh my God, there's opportunity abound. And that's what really inspired me to take the leap. Well, walk us through how, how Plum started, you yeah. know, from a team co-founding and, and how did the brand come to be? Yeah, so we um, originally, we were actually called Nest Collective. Um, Cheryl Lawson, who's the CEO of Cliff Bar at the time and a dear, dear friend of mine and, and someone I've been through the trenches with and know in certain terms. She, um, she and I left Cliff around the same time and um, she actually was the one who recruited me into Cliff Bar. And so um, had a, just a, a deep connection with, with Cheryl and you know, she had two sons at the time as well. And so we both had this real affinity for this idea of like changing the way the kids eat by getting the very best food to them from the very first bite. Right. I mean, that was sort of our, our mission statement. And Cheryl and I both, uh, you can tell by me creating these crazy wireless hugs. Like we had another principle was like, we wear our heart on our sleeve, which is hmm. we're going to be, we're going to be who we are. We're going to be human. We're going to be people while we start this company. And hopefully our, our, our brand and our company will be humanistic in that way where it's not, we're not, you know, we're not making business decisions purely for business decisions. We're making human decisions to better people and the planet. Right. And, um, one of the, one of the things that, um, probably typifies that best, you've heard this expression, 
um, you know, hey, it's not personal, it's business. I think that's one of the single most damning phrases in business today, which by the nature of that statement, it takes humanity out of the equation. Mm -hmm. And I think today humanity needs to be squarely centered in any decision that any business makes. Um, so the best business is personal. The best business is personal. And, um, and when you do that, you know, it radiates out from those value systems to the people you hire, the culture you build, the brand that actually lives in the world and people feel it. You know, we talk a lot about authenticity in brands and I, and I actually believe that authenticity comes from individuals with belief systems that then form cultures and that radiates out through the brand. Mm -hmm. It's not a tagline. It's not a logo. You know, it's not any of those kind of things. It's your actions. It's your beliefs that get played out in your products, your brand experience and all that stuff. And so, um, Cheryl deeply believed in that as well. So we were off to the races. We raised a small amount of money, um, from Jed Smith, who, um, was also an entrepreneur in his time. He, started drugstore.com. Mm -hmm. I think it went from zero to a billion dollars in valuation <laughs> in 12 months or something like that. So he was mildly successful. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And ahead of his time. It's a low bar. A little bit ahead of his time. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, you know, and Jed was, he saw the opportunity as well. He had, he had kids as well. And so, um, you know, he really was the central part of that. And then, you know, from there, you know, Cheryl and I, you know, found guys like Bentley Hall, who is a dear friend of ours from Cliff Bar. He was our third employee in and in many ways really a co-founder with us. And, um, and Bentley, you know, first started with finance, then took on operations, ultimately led innovation and then our, our UK business. And now he's the CEO of Good Eggs. Yeah, he's an incredible individual. And he comes from that same place. That value system leads everything you do. And so created an amazing culture. Um, community and then products on the innovation side, I was off to the races. And we, we started with a partnership with Revolution Foods where we, were, we, um, we had a license to do all the consumer packaged goods um, on those things. And, um, and we came to Natural Products Expo in 2008. This is actually a really fun story. We were super bootstrapped at the time. And we had developed, I think, roughly six unique product lines. One of them was the spouted pouch. Right. And the first, uh, the first one in the market, and it was focused on actually an applesauce product for a kid's lunchbox. And, um, and so we had all these great products, and we're like, okay, we need to go to the Natural Products Expo, like everyone does, yeah, the watering hole right. for the industry. And, um, and we had enough money for a booth. We had enough money to ship a booth, but not to rent a booth and ship it. So we were like, <laughs> like how, how do we solve this problem? And uh, so I came up with this idea that we were going to buy a school bus. We were going to shrink wrap it. And one of our guys was going to drive it from Oakland, California, all the way to Boston. And literally, we drove the bus onto the show floor, pulled out some tables, and it was shrink wrapped with our brand. So right. it was like, and the amount of buzz we got where oh, it's wow. like, these crazy Californians drove across the country. <laughs> and it was like, we were on the scene. That's and it right. was like, it was, it was live, right? And of course, you picked uh, Natural Products East to drive as opposed of course, to West. Of course, West. Driving yeah, down, we're like, no, that's driving not, down to Anaheim. Yeah, that's no. not long enough. Like, yeah. That's right. Eight yeah. days versus six hours. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> or whatever. And it gets back to, I mean, in many ways, it's that same punk rock, like, all right, we're going to do this Go on thing. tour. Yeah. We're going to go on tour. And uh, so we took Healthy Kids Food on tour and... Um, hit natural products expo and, and it was, it was amazing. It was electric. I mean, we all felt it. And, um, and I think the, the industry felt it as well. And so, you know, majority of us, while we were there at natural products, it was a really important show for us. And I actually think there's, you know, when you talk about those culminating moments, what's that one moment where your, where your brand is going to do something huge. 
it really started with that show and, and Natural Products Expo. So a lot of our sales folks were, were chasing down everyone from Whole Foods, every region, and they're like checking out badges, like, hey, is that guy from Whole Foods? Is that woman from Whole Foods? Like, right. right. And uh, we had the head buyer from Babies R Us come up, and, um, and everyone was so focused on the Whole Foods. They're like, Babies R Us? I don't know. That's a weird, you know, like, <laughs> that doesn't really make sense. So, so I ended up, you know, chatting with him. This guy is named Paul D. Yeah. Now we call him Pauly D. That's right. And uh, he's from Jersey. And um, I'm from upstate New York, so I immediately connected with him. You know, kids grazed in the 70s listening to Rush and, you know, punk rock music and whatever. <laughs> and so Paul and I started talking, and he said, you know, I, I want to bring healthy food to kids around the country as well. So there was good mission alignment. And I was like, yeah, it seems like kind of an odd fit for Babies R Us, Toys R Us. And then he started talking about all of the new moms that come into Babies R Us through the baby registry every year. And he said, we, we literally reach millions of moms every year. He's like, come out to New Jersey. I want to you know share more about Babies R Us. And I want to talk about your innovation pipeline. But I love what you guys are currently doing here with Red Foods. So in that show, we had finalized a deal to basically buy the trademark of Plum Organics um, because we wanted to move into the baby. From Gigi. From Gigi. Um, we wanted to move into the baby business, and we had the spouted pouch, and we knew we wanted to bring that into the baby uh, space. It was the first of its kind, and we thought that was going to be massively disruptive. And so we had finalized that deal, and literally I flew out to meet with Paul D. in New Jersey, and I had concepts and mock-ups of the spouted pouches for baby food you know, with the Plum brand on it. And, um, and Paulie D was like, look, yes, I'm going to take this Revolution Food stuff. This is awesome. I love it. And he's like, now that stuff, he's like, what's the timing on that? And I'm like, yeah, we're thinking like a year, maybe 12, you know, like 18 months. And he was like, give it to me in three months and I'll take you national. And I'll introduce <laughs> you to every new mom in America through the registry. And I literally, this is the moment, I literally said yes. You know, no hesitation. No hesitation. <laughs> leaned in and said yes. I'm like, yes, we can do that. And you know, you guys know you're in the consumer package yeah. space. It's literally unheard of. Oh yeah. To think of launching a new product line, especially in, baby food. I mean, that's, well, any of it, right? That's I mean, right. you just even think about getting packaging oh, done, yeah. the graphic design, the but food it, formulation. But it is amazing how many yeses that entrepreneurs make to um, to retailers with with generally. Not a clear path on how they're actually going to accomplish well, or that. Or not even just retailers. I think just in, just in, in general, general, I guess. Like well, you got, true. You Honestly, believe. yes is the most powerful word word in business, That's right? Yeah. right? And, and, and you sort it out later. And, yeah. and if you can deliver on the promise, yeah. that is that is what you know makes. I think those early shots. You know, none of this stuff is easy. And and quite frankly, like you look in the rearview mirror and, and all these stories. We were talking about this earlier. Right. All these stories sound really romantic and simple and smooth. They're not. They're painful. They're hard. They're difficult. And when you say yes more than no, it even becomes more difficult. Right. But the payoff when you get it right is nothing short of remarkable. Right? And that's what and, and that's what larger, more bureaucratic organizations really struggle to do. They, they do. They can't say yes without ten other people approving exactly. it. And that's the that's the magic of of emerging brands like like Plum. Yeah. I mean, I think there was a, probably an air gap of three to four seconds between the request and the answer. <laughs> right. Right. As opposed to like you said months and debates and deliberations and stuff like that. So I literally get out of the meeting. I'm in a car. I'm on the phone with my team in California because they're three hours, you know, ahead and they're, um, or behind and they're, <clears throat> and they were like, okay, look, and I'm like, we got three months. We got, you know, we want to do six SKUs. We need to get formulation spun up. We need to get graphics and we need recipes, graphics in a week. And we'd already had, we obviously had the, the filler. We mm-hmm. had, we had, um, 
contracted in, in North America. And so we had all the infrastructure needed. But the things that were, you know, the big things like getting your recipe, getting your graphic design, getting the films produced, right. all of that stuff, the packaging. So literally, we laid out this plan. We had packaging air freighted um, from Italy over to the United States to get it done in time. And we literally hit the mark. It was nothing short of miraculous. And I think that's the, you know, I'm, I've always been proud of the Plum team. I mean, it's an amazing group of people that's like, you know, they lead with heart, they're mission driven, but the the ability to execute with that level of excellence is nothing short of amazing, right? So like I characterize, you know, people at Plum as type A with heart, mm-hmm. right? Which is just hard char- charging, like mission driven, but they are like experts at what they do. Um, From a leadership perspective, I mean, you can kind of see this going one of two ways, right? One is you make that call and people say, wait, you promised what? Um, there's, you know, and then all the string of no's kind of, kind of yeah, come up that's right. or the flip side is everybody rallies together and they charge forward and they, they go for it. But how did you as a leader kind of get people in the right camp? Well, that's the thing. We, we honestly, like our team, I, I made that call and everyone's like, let's do this. <laughs> I mean that, and that's the difference, right? It's, it's, it starts with who you hire, yeah. you know, it's the tone you set. And, um, and I think we all wanted to go big or go home. I mean, it wasn't, we weren't screwing around, right. you know, and, and I think part of it is also we had this mission orientation where we wanted to change the way that kids eat. And we had this amazing opportunity to reach, you know, every new mom in America with an organic product. Like it's unheard of, you know, it used to be the pathway was like go to Whole Foods, kiss the ring, you know, do that kind of stuff. And, and then it's a slow march across the country. Right. And, and this was a this was a way to reach more people in a really highly effective way. And so everyone was like, I mean, there was obviously there was like, oh, my God, this is difficult. We've got to work through this stuff. But like there was this overwhelming. Yeah, let's get it done. Um, was there some and then imagine scaling nationally with babies are us. That must have taken some capital. Was there any type of major capital raise that happened yeah. around that time? Yeah, we had um, we had done an initial seed raise um, with Jed Smith, and then we brought on a few other players um, at that around that time. And so, yeah, we, we had a capital infusion coming in. But, um, but you know, still very bootstrapped, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, had you had any experience in sort of raising capital at that point? How much from whom? What not, do you do? Not particularly. I mean, this is the interesting thing about, you know, some of the thing. And Cheryl and I often reflect on this is like we were blessed in many ways with with the plum journey. You know, there were so many things that, you know, I don't believe in luck or chance, but I but I do believe that when opportunity pr- presents itself, you know, it's how you respond to that. And and the first one was, you know, we got introduced to Jed Smith and, you know, he, because he was an entrepreneur in his own right, you know, he literally was like, I love this idea. Like we literally were on the phone with him. Like, I love this idea. He's like, let's do this thing. And we're like, okay, well, what do you mean? You know, like, <laughs> and he's like, well, he's like, well, you know, I'll help you guys build a business plan. Cause bear in mind, I was a product designer. Right. Yeah. Right. And Cheryl had been a CEO of a company, but you know, never raised money or any of that kind of stuff. And so. So he literally kind of coached us through, like, okay, we're going to, you know, help you build your, your case or your pitch deck, mm-hmm. and you're going to pitch it to me. <laughs> <laughs> and then he put one point. But I'm in. But I'm in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but yeah, but he was like, but yeah. No, but but he, he almost said he's in, and then make the pitch deck, no, and let's. No, for let's, sure. Yeah. yeah, for sure. It was uh, really in many ways, in like hindsight, he, he really was coaching and training us. That's right. right? You know, yeah. um, and, you know, and he put $1.5 million in, which was not a small amount, but he, you know, and, you know, but he you know, retained a, a good, healthy percent of the company by mm-hmm. doing that. And, and, um, you know, and, and at the end of it all with Plum, he did incredibly well, you know, so I think, um, really smart investment on his part. But, um, but, but after going through that, you know, again, it's, it's, it's not an overly complicated 
you know, um, idea to raise money. It's just mm-hmm. you need to know the, the basics and what are the things the investors need to see. And so, you know, by the time we were in our second round, we, we were a lot more tuned in and we had the kind of metrics that people were looking for. And, uh, and, then, and then once we launched these plum pouches in Babies R Us, it really was a hockey stick for the company. Right. Um, and there was this culminating moment. So after saying yes, three months, you know, three months of product development, shipping and launching this, I was in a Babies R Us in South San Francisco. It was like the first week when it had launched. And um, I was the guy in the aisle just kind of hanging out, like pretending to be busy, you oh, know, gosh, yeah. <laughs> in the baby food aisle. Yeah. It's like, what? Intercepting yeah. parents as they, as they walk the so aisle. So why did, why did you do that? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and and I, saw, I saw one mom you know, pick it off the shelf and, and said something like, ah, it's like space food, put it back on. And then literally another mom picked it off a little while later and she had her toddler in the shopping cart and she cracked it open and gave it to him. And it was like, the, literally the toddler was sucking on this thing. And I'm like, this is going to be huge. Yeah. And it was that moment where we're like, this is going to be, this is going to change the game, not only for us, but hopefully for, for the industry and for parents around the country. And so it was, it was pretty pretty amazing and we do credit i mean one of the things is like you know folks like jed folks like Polly d like they're all such an important part of making plum what it was and who we are today you know well, walk us through the journey i mean yep. at, at some point cheryl cheryl did move on yep that's right and, and kind of walk us through kind of what that transition looked like yeah and then the plum journey from there yeah so um so when cheryl and i first started as co-founders she uh, was overseeing finance operations, and um, and I was overseeing product, innovation, marketing, and um, so kind of the, the world was divvied into two. Uh, she was the CEO. I was the chief innovation officer. Uh, after a year in, and, I, and she actually had sales as well, after a year in uh, with all my fancy footwork with Polly D, I ended up taking over sales as yeah. well. And, um, and then in 2000, midway through 2008, I took over operations as well. And so... In 2009, um, we decided that I was going to take over running the company, and um, and I think about in 2010, she ultimately left um, to go um, lead uh, education at Stanford, uh, entrepreneurial studies at Stanford. Right. Did the idea ever come across either yourself or, or some of your advisors that wait a second, you know, maybe it's time for us to bring in another CEO, or was it always just this idea of hey, you're going to step up? Yeah, you know, I think it. it Again, there really wasn't a question that like, oh, we're going to bring in someone outside. You know, I think at that time I was running almost every aspect of the company and we were crushing it. Mm-hmm. So there, were, there, wasn't a, there wasn't a deficit or a void. And I do remember our investors, and we had Catterton had come in at the time. Um, they, they did say, look, this is going to be a big step for you. You know, you're now going to be leading the entire organization. You're going to be managing the board more fully than you currently do. And, um, you know, and I actually had one investor said, um, you know, he's like, it was right before our board meeting, my first board meeting that I was running. <laughs> so, and he said, he said, you need to go in there and you need to say, trust me or change me, but don't second guess me. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, he's like, you need to be definitive. You need to kind of let people know that you're in charge and that you're going to, you got the reins mm-hmm. and you're going to do this thing. Right. And, and, um, and I remember just being like, wow, that's because I'm not, I'm, that's, not, that's, not my, that's not my vibe or my style. And I'm like, really? Wow. That's like pretty intense. That's, that's but I do remember. First rem- page of the deck right there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I do remember going in and saying that probably more of an Neil way where I was like, hey, guys, look, you know, this is how you know, <laughs> I got this thing. Trust me or change me. Better, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like the, uh, 
uh, right. you know, the full type A. It was type A with heart. Right? Right. <laughs> so it was like soft around the edges. But, yeah. but I, you know, I, I do, again, I credit all of our investors, um, Ilya Nike and, um, you know, all of our friends um, at Catterton, you know, they, they really did believe in, you know, in us. And when we raised money, we actually, this is going to be a little bit of a, uh, a funny framework, but when we raised money, we had uh, Maslow's hierarchy of investment needs where we had a pyramid and it was the four C's. And, and why this is relevant to this story is because I think we picked the right partners for us, ultimately, when stuff really goes wrong, that's when people's true colors come out. For sure. And so when you have a leadership change like the one we had, it was stressful for the organization. It was stressful for Cheryl and I and for the board, right? And so people's true colors came out, and they were actually wonderful. Mm-hmm. And they were amazing. And um, so the four C's at the bottom of the pyramid, and I give advice to entrepreneurs all the time to follow these because I think they're, they're fairly universal, but in the, in the world of values-based investing, still fairly new. So at the bottom is cash or capital, right? That's very transactional. And that's usually what people are like, I need to raise money. That's where they start. That's the baseline. That's like shelter, mm-hmm. right? Um, the next level up is connections. Who do you know and how is it going to drive the business forward, right? So great. You know, George Foreman, how's he going to sell more baby food? I don't know, you know? And so, <laughs> you know, but, but again, Gr- grill it. Yeah. those are grill it. <laughs> those, those are table stakes for, right. for any kind of investment. Either it's, you know, um, you know, venture or private equity. Mm-hmm. And the ones that above are actually really do separate out many investors. So the next one was coaching versus control, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, a lot of folks come in and they're like, we want to run the show. We know better than you how to run the business. And we said, look, we've been pioneering and innovating in this space. We know this game. You know how to make us amazing executives. Coach us. Don't take over the business. Right. And, mm-hmm. and the people we ended up recruiting actually said, yeah, we believe yep. in you. and We're going to invest in teaching and training you guys. Right. And the last one is culture, which is, do you believe in the mission of getting better food to kids? And if so, are you willing to make choices on the P&L to actually be mission centric? You know, and in our case, it was actually trying to tackle infant hunger and malnutrition, along with building a really productive, profitable, healthy food company focused on kids. And and the answer was yes for all of our investors. And so that was the criteria that we had. And so by the time when something like a leadership change happens, we'd already been talking about how do you coach us to be amazing executives? Mm-hmm. And they were like, great, here's the coaching moment. Let's mm-hmm. do this thing. Because they were already on board on all the four Cs. They were on so, board. I mean, it was part of the... Well, that, was a thesis of, that was a thesis on why you chose Catterton and other investors in the first place. That's right. That's right. That's right. So, so you, 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 make, you make this glorious speech in, uh, in your board. <laughs> what, what, what are, um, so what were some of the major turning points from there? Um, that really continue to put Plum on the map. Well, you know, it, it's interesting in many ways, like the momentum that, um, that we had developed with the product, with the branding that we were doing, with the sales development that we were leading, like, you know, we were, we were hockey-sticked at that point. So it was literally, it was all about how do you scale mm-hmm. for the ride? How do you continue to innovate? Because once we disrupted the glass jar paradigm, you know, right. like literally, and we did it with, six skews so we call it the wedge you can imagine like scooting over six glass jars to put six pouches in. <laughs> yeah there's still literally 12 linear feet uh top to bottom of glass jars so it was like this tiny little presentation but we said all right that was our wedge now from there we want to do expanded wedge we want to go from you know six to 20 right so then all of a sudden it was like all right we're innovating around ages and stages flavor combinations, you know, all the different permeations. So it's like, 
once we disrupted the industry, the entire category was up for reinvention. And so I created a roadmap with my team and we just literally ticked them off stage one, stage two, stage three, you know, healthy snacks for infants and toddlers. I mean, you name it. And we were doing it. We launched roughly 45 products almost every year. So um, given that it was, you guys were being so disruptive at that point in time, when you're looking further out, were you talking six month increments, 12 months, 18 yeah, months? Yeah. So in, in our innovation cycles, we were roughly around six to eight months. Got it. Mm-hmm. But I imagine with that growth and innovation, it puts a lot of stress on the supply chain. Oh, was was that a challenge? Huge challenge. I mean, look, we were we were scaling. We were trying to find sourcing. Um, you know, we were um, you know, obviously even just putting infrastructure in place for filling spouted pouches in the United States didn't exist. You know, we we ended up buying one of the first pieces of equipment and bringing it into um, into a facility in North America. And then from there, it was like. How do we get people on board? And, and there was a lot of co-packers that started to see this emerging industry around the spouted pouch. And we partnered with a few players to help. You know, we bought equipment. We put them into their facilities. Mm-hmm. Treetop Applesauce was one of them. We actually bought the first, you know, their first pouch filler, put it in there and ran it for, you know, I think that partnership went in like about six years. Mm-hmm. And um, it was incredible. And now they're, you know, they're doing their own applesauce and spouted pouches. But and I mean, at the time, they were like, I don't know, this format is pretty weird. You know? <laughs> like, um, so we really had to convince people that this is going to be the next big packaging disruption in the industry. And, um, and then find those co-packers, make sure quality assurance was in, pack, you know, um, was in place. Uh, and then buy, in many cases, we bought equipment alongside manufacturers to help scale as quickly as we needed to. But, but if I recall back into that time period, yeah. there, the, price, the pricing was pretty aggressive on pouches a lot of discounting was happening yeah. on the shelf to yeah. try to, to, to convert consumers off glass. Yeah. There wasn't a whole lot of um, manufacturing um, infrastructure, as you've mentioned. And then it's organic fruit pouch. I imagine that margins were challenged for a while there. And Very challenged. So, and so how, did you, how did you go about expanding margins from both directions, both from pricing and from a supply chain perspective? Yeah, you know, I mean, one of the things we, we realized going in is that scale mattered. Right. So uh, going in, you know, at originally we came out, I think we were at, you know, $1.79 a pouch, very quickly moved it down to $1.49. And then with depending on the retailer, people would deal down and 99 cents became sort of that deal down price point and the velocities would explode. I mean, mm-hmm. literally people would come in and clear out the shelves at yep. 99 cents for pouches. How much was a glass jar just, just in comparison? In comparison, you know, a really bargain basement one would be 49 cents. Got it. Um, yep. You know, probably all the way up to 89, 99 cents, depending on what the flavor was but, um, or the brand was. But I think the, you know, the, the big insight, and, and we know the scale matters in consumer package goods. So, you know, what do you need to do to get to scale to be able to then, you know, start having profitability mm-hmm. and um and you know the cost of goods goes down the manufacturing unit tolling costs go down all of those things with scale right so um so we actually invested for pricing and growth you know and so part of our raises that we would do a certain amount would be offsetting the app you know the total cost of a pouch the true cost of a pouch mm-hmm. to get it to a competitive price point that we could scale and really flip the industry and at the same time, continued competition was coming in the market oh. with a number of different brands. And so how did you navigate that? Yeah, I mean, it was really intense. And so we had, you know, Happy Baby, Ella's Kitchen, uh, Earth's Best was a couple of years later. And then the, the big one that I think rattled the entire industry, where it really showed the fact that this, this 
spouted pouch format that we had pioneered really converted the entire industry it was when Gerber and Beechnut mm-hmm. came in and, and they did it. And right. they came out with organic, you know, spouted pouch baby food. And so, you know, the, um, it was intense and, you know, you'd think, you know, baby food, it's like, you know, a cutesy kind of category. I mean, it was, it was ruthless. Right? Um, <laughs> the long knives came out, right. you know, everyone was yeah. really yeah. fighting, you know, fighting for, um, for shelf space, you know, for pricing and positioning and things like that. And, and, you know, what's interesting within that and in the natural products industry, it's, it's, it's a, we were talking about this earlier. It's a, it's a, it's a great industry in that, like it's very mission centric. So, uh, oftentimes people can raise up above competition to something that's more higher purpose, right? right. Which in, in our case was getting better food to kids across the country. And, um, you know, early days, I think there was not a whole lot of trust between competitors and there was a lot of skepticism. And over the years, um, we ended up finding commonality in our mission. You know, I have a deep respect for Shazi and um, Paul from Ella's, Shazi from Happy Baby, mm-hmm. Paul from Ella's. I mean, they're amazing business leaders and um, they're impacting people's lives every day. And so, you know, it ended up, I think as we, you know, the three of us really grew that industry, um, the organic baby food industry, we came some commonality between us. So Paul from, from Ella's uh, and I, he's like, he's like the British version of me, <laughs> um, you know, his dad mission driven, you know, um, my parents are British. So I yeah. re- immediately connected with him. Like we bonded over Marmite, um, <laughs> uh, and, and, and bad tea over steep tea. But, um, you know, he and I ended up, you know, having this one meeting at natural products expo where, you know, we're, you know, you kind of checking each other out, like, mm, I don't know if I trust this guy and this stuff. And, we started talking about the mission and we started talking about the impact we can make and this idea that, you know, a rising tide raises all boats and that Mm -hmm. perhaps if we shared a common mission that we, you know, while we'll compete handedly on the field, we actually can rise above that. And uh, he and I have become dear friends and, you know, our, our family, you know, we've had them vacationing out in the States with our family and, um, and then when we're in the field, though, we compete like, you know, like there's no tomorrow, you know, but it's but it's great. And what what I what I love about it's like that, the modern day athlete. Yeah, it's yeah. exactly right. And what I love about that is that um, you can transcend, you know, personal interests. You can transcend classic business competition right. and all of that stuff still happens. Right. And you you will let the best player, let the best pouch, let the best brand win. But, you know, but you can find commonality. And, and actually, it's been one of the one of the coolest uh, experiences coming out of Plum. It was just that connection that we made. And I, we couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that that so many things you've said really align with with our values at VMG in terms of that, you know, that it's it's that business is personal. Yep. And the concept around alignment and shared vision and trust. And then this fact of the that competitors can be can be friends and yeah, absolutely and it actually we're, we we do all share a common goal of trying to improve what what people put on their bodies and in their bodies absolutely and, and the other I, thing is so many of these businesses they're emerging brands they get to yes faster uh, you know in, yep. in our conversations with founders you know a lot of these pivot points or these like incredible moments was when you had a probably, you know, a, a yes that was given that maybe, you know, a much larger organization couldn't have given. Yes, but that's right. But the competition mm-hmm. oftentimes isn't really between those types of businesses. It's actually between, you know, the establishment of larger organizations. Yeah. It's yeah. more that. Look, I mean, there's a seismic shift that's happening within the world of food, you know, and you, you see it. There's big dominant brands that have been in the market for years. And um, the next generation of consumers 
Gen Xers, millennials, they want different things from their brands, and they, they look for that authenticity we talked about early on. And, you know, I think so there is a wholesale change-up of, you know, what are the driving, leading growth brands? And they're mostly mission-driven. They're natural, organic. They're healthy, better for you. And they have a personality and a purpose that people really connect with in their heads and their hearts, you know. And I think that's the recipe for success going forward. It was very clear that this brand was going to be important and meaningful for strategic um, buyers. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then simultaneously, we also saw we were at this inflection point where we had taken it to, I think, a remarkable scale for you know, a small startup company. But our mission was to be in every retailer and every home in America, on every high chair and in every lunchbox. And so to do that, we were like, how do we take it to the next level? And a strategic partnership was the answer to that question. And so in 2013, we ran a process and, um, you know, we had a number of interested parties. And the one that really stood out was probably, again, the most unusual from, you know, face value, which was Campbell's Soup. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we had Houlihan Loki managing our yep. process. Mm-hmm. And, and Jay was, um, mm-hmm. you know, Jay Novak was, was running it. And he, he called me up and he said, hey, you know, Campbell's Soup is interested in meeting with you guys. I was like, that's awesome. <laughs> like I'm like, like that's kind of a weird. That's an that's odd, right, right. you know, it's an odd brand to to be interested in an organic baby food brand. And I hadn't really known my my touch points with with Campbell Soup were like loving their tomato soup as a kid <laughs> right. and loving Andy Warhol. Right. And I'm like, both are awesome. Yeah, you know? that's right. But, but it but it wasn't you know it didn't seem like the natural home. And so he said, look, you know, take a meeting, listen and listen what they have to say. And so I met Denise Morrison, who's the CEO of Campbell's. She's an amazing woman, incredible visionary. Um, and um, you know, I met her at, at the Waldorf Story for breakfast. And um, she always likes to say she was like, I was really hard to figure out who Neil was because their org chart had all their their baby photos. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And so, um, and so the, the only saving grace was that my, you know, my little kid photo actually was wearing the same dorky glasses that I wear, <laughs> that I wear today. So she's like, Oh yeah, the guy in the glasses, you know, but, um, but we sat down and we talked for about an hour and a half. And the first thing she said to me is that, you know, my grandkids are plum babies. They're not Gerber babies. And I get what you do. Mm-hmm. And I've been sent out at all hours of the day and night to go get plum organics for my, for my grandkids. And, Mm -hmm. um, and she said, you know, I love what you do. I love the mission that you have and we want to help you scale it. And it was like, it was the first conversation that wasn't about our growth, our metrics, our profitability of this, that it was about our mission. And, um, and Denise, Denise operates Campbell's soup that way. And since she took over running the company, um, she has brought mission and purpose to everything they do. And Plum was one of those steps along the journey that she was um, trying to move Campbell's into. Uh, she had acquired uh, Bold House Farms, which yep. is one of the largest carrot, uh, fresh carrot producers in the country. Mm-hmm. And they have a big uh, fresh juice business as well. So this was, you know, you know, beyond the Andy Warhols and the tomato soup can, like That's what right. she's, she's transformed. Right. All of that stuff represents like a third of what Campbell's is. A lot of the rest of it is really driving into the health and wellness space. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I was... I was totally enamored with Denise, her leadership, her vision. And she also said very different than anyone else. We want to keep you in Emeryville. We want to keep you independent and the magic of what you've created, the productivity you have, we want to make sure we protect and preserve the mission, everything about it. And we want to help you support with sales distribution and operations and logistics. Right. And we're like, perfect. And so, you know, three months later we were acquired by, by Campbell soup. And, um, 
and it was it was it was an amazing experience. And I've, I'm still connected today to uh, to Plum. I still stay on as the chairman of the board, and um, and I have a very close relationship with Denise and the rest of the leadership team at Campbell. So and this we'll, was the the first ahead. time that you had sold a business. What was anything anything that was or what was the most surprising? Aspect oh, well, it of was it a all? painful process. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean for folks out there, I just, yeah, you know, well, like yeah. let's describe it. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I mean, part of this you know, every decision you make in this process has an impact, right? So um, who you sell it to, the, the, the structure that you put in place, how much you push on things that, that deeply matter to you. I have a funny story I'll tell you like around becoming a public benefit corporation. Yep. So we were a B Corp. I'll come yep. back to this. So how much you push on in the moment versus how much do you rely on the trust that you're building through the process to push things forward, right? I mean, it's a delicate dance. And um, everyone has got, you know, I would say everyone's on pins and needles on the buy and sell side, mm-hmm. right? So um, it's intense, it's time compressed, and um, you know the the deal gets I you know tossed out probably three or four times before it gets done. I've heard that like comment for other experiences, mm-hmm. and, and it was true of ours as well. There's right. there's always an exploding you know part of the offer, and it, you know it's like <laughs> oh it blew up. Oh we're actually still going for it. Okay, great. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, so so you have these like undulations, but. Um, it's like a roller coaster ride of emotion. Sure. You know, it's an absolute roller coaster ride, and um, and it's one that I don't know what can prepare you for it because it is so deeply personal. And if you care about your business, it, you know, in many cases, like it was great to have a financial, you know, upside or return from it. But it was it was more about we spent so many years building this brand and want to protect and preserve it that it, like it was a lot of those emotions. Um, combined with the excitement of like, oh my gosh, like we right. actually achieved something and That's we right. built this amazing company and people are telling us it's worth something, you know? And so, so anyway, there was a lot of that. Um, but the, um, you know, after the process, I, I literally, I, I, my wife and I, I hadn't taken a vacation in probably seven or eight years. And so we took four days off and went to Hawaii. <laughs> and I remember just like sleeping at the four seasons, <laughs> in the four seasons for could, like four days. You could have been anywhere. Basically. Yeah, it could have been anywhere. Yeah, and been honestly, your, yeah. it was that kind of situation. Right. It was like, you know, I'd, you know, I'd stumble, you know, I'd stumble out, lay by the pool and then go <laughs> sleep some more, you That's know? Right. Um, and then obviously taking phone calls the whole four days oh. to like about the transition and the That's integration right. and all right. this kind of stuff. And, um, so what was it like uh, after acquisition? Did well, they live up to what they had promised in terms of independence? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I would say absolutely yes. Um, you know, I, I think when you when you get into the details of it, you've got a 147-year-old company meshing gears with a 7-year-old company. And that just, those gears don't fit, you know? And so typically, and this is one of the things that was really cool about the relationship, typically it was... Big company comes and says, great, we got it. We'll take it from here. We know how to do what you do better than you do, right? And we've seen the byproduct of that. Kashi, um, you know, Ben and Jerry's in the early days. There was a lot of roadkill. And so we actually, um, Denise Morrison, Mark Alexander, who is the president of the Americas, and I actually spent time looking at all of those stories and saying, what did they do right? What did they do wrong? And what are we going to do differently? Because it's not acceptable to come in and kind of have this thing. And so Denise had this thing. She's like, we don't want to Campbellize you, um, <laughs> you know? And so, um, so, you know, we, we, you know, it was a dance, right? Yep. I mean, there was a lot of strategic alignment at the top. And I think where the, where the rubber hit the road was in more of the functional disciplines. And that's where I think it was a little more challenging. So we had to make sure that we were all, you know, 
in the details of mm-hmm. every interaction and every day, you know. Um, and, you know, and there's some things that, you know, quite frankly, went smoother than others. But um, but on balance, you know, Plum is still in Emeryville. It's still doing great. And, um, you know, and the, the mothership in New Jersey is still supporting it fully. Was there a challenge from a people dynamic? I mean, a lot of times you see yeah. emerging brands sell to a strategic buyer. And, you know, for, for one reason or another, people leave. Did you find yeah. that to be the case at Plum? Yeah, I did. And, and quite frankly, one of the things that I that I learned from it was that I was desperately trying to keep the band together. Mm-hmm. You know, it was kind of like, you know, it's like those early days, you know, it's like this small group of people came together to do something really epic. And, you know, we were all in it for a lot of the same reasons, but at the, at the end of the day, like when we, when we went through that threshold or that, you know, cross that line, if you will, you know, it was, it's a moment for reflection for everyone. And the one thing that was true is everyone worked their tail off for seven years. So, I mean, we were all exhausted, you know? Um, so some people were just like, I need a break. You know, I need to step back and reflect. Some people were just really scared of, you know, this, this can't possibly go well with a big company. So I just don't even want to entertain that idea. Um, and, you know, and then some people were, were, you know, were more in it for like, great, I came here to, to, you know, build this and sell this and, you know, and I'm on to my next thing. Right. So there was probably, I would say probably close to 50% of the people within the first year had one of those three kind of reactions and ended up leaving. And it was, it was in the moment where, and I, over that year, I spent a, a disproportionate amount of time and energy worrying. I stayed up at night worrying about this stuff where I was like, Oh my God, these people are, and because they were my, they were my family right. in many ways. Right. Mm-hmm. And they were my friends, they were families, they were my colleagues. Mm-hmm. And, um, it broke my heart, you know, and, and, you know, just in that way where you're like, you know, probably like all of our experience of like last day of high school, last day of college, (laughs) like we had, we had this offsite where it was the night before, um, the deal had already been finalized. It was the night before money was wired into everyone's accounts. And, and we were down the coast, um, on highway one at this, at this place. And, um, it was amazing. It was just, you know, we, we hung out all night long around a fire and there was probably, I don't know, there's probably 75 of us, you know, I mean, it was oh, wow. amazing. It would, but it had that vibe where it was like tomorrow morning, yep. things are going to be different are, tonight. Yeah. This, we're going to celebrate like there's no tomorrow. Right. And, um, the next morning things were different. And, um, and so over the course of that year, you know, we had this, this transition in this particular place, um, Costa Noa, we'd go down for, for these offsites. So we had one the following year. So literally, one year to the day mm-hmm. and I was getting ready to give a, a talk to, you know, all the employees. And I asked my head of HR, I'm like, how many people are new? Like how much do I have to go and, you know, talk about some of the history and the background and, you know, this kind of stuff. And she's like, all right, let me get back to you. And like, she comes back and she's like 45% of the people in the, oh, in the wow. room are new within the last 12 months. Right. I couldn't believe it. 45% of people. And what was so amazing, and this is my big learning was the brand was so strong, the culture was so strong that we had built over the years, that the energy in the room that day was as electric as it was twelve months before, and maybe higher because they're a new. They, they were on the, a exactly new. Right. It was a new journey it for was these forty five percent. It was folks. a new journey. They were all signed up for the mission. They were all signed up for the new structure. That's right. And um, and they were just they were ready to go. They weren't right? nostalgic yeah. about how it used to be. They were raising the plum flag higher even right. than some of the folks that were just you know that, that that had been you know doing that for seven years, tired and ready for a break. Right. And um, and it was one of the things like you know, and I and I and I tell other entrepreneurs that are kind of experiencing this is that 
everyone's going to have their own journey and their own story. So don't try and keep the band together. Make sure that you, you know, deeply empathically understand where all of these people, your brothers and sisters have gone through this thing with you, where they're going to go, what they need to do and support them fully to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, The other is make sure you've built a strong enough culture that when you're filling those, you know, those seats, it's with people that get it just like the, the, you know, those founding group and that have the same passion and energy. And if you can do those things, right. You know, that mission, that drive will continue on. But after we sold the company, my wife and all our infinite wisdom literally held a mirror up to me and said, (laughs) you've been running this company for eight years. Now you got to start taking care of yourself. And I was 65 pounds heavier than I was when I had started the company. A muscle? (laughs) <laughs> Unfortunately not. No, is the yeah. 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 Jiggly muscle. I guess. <laughs> no, literally sixty five pounds ever. And I was before starting the company, I was an Ironman triathlete, right? Oh. So I was I was, you know, you know, pretty close to peak performance. But um, you know, it, it was it, you know, high stress environment. So it was too much travel, too much work, you know, quite frankly, too much stress, not enough sleep, not enough good food, not enough of the principles that we actually were hoping to to deliver to families across the country. And so um no, sort of the irony. We're so focused on getting healthy food to kids, like true of many parents out there. Like your own health takes a hit, That's right? right? And so, um, so you know that set me off on my own health and wellness journey. And and you know being a, a product designer and being inquisitive by nature, and and then now an entrepreneur. I was like, I can't be the only one who, you know, is consumed by work in modern society, too much work, not enough healthy. You know, and I was like, this is something that if I can solve this problem for me, maybe I can solve it for other people. And the big shift that I did instead of just going to the doctor, I actually started reaching out to scientists and physicians around the country and ultimately around the world that were looking at cutting edge methodologies to understand what makes you you and how healthy you can be. And so I spent time with the one of the fathers of the Human Genome Project, Dr. Leroy Hood, in Seattle, and um, got my full genome sequenced. And then I ultimately got a bunch of blood work done, metabolic efficiency tests. I got this thing, you know, a ventilator strapped <laughs> on my face and was told to ride, you know, max efficiency for 45 minutes on a bike. I mean, I got every test done you can imagine. They call it biohacking now. Back yeah. when I was an Ironman triathlete, you know, yeah. just tinkering, you know, just <laughs> trying to figure this stuff out. But um, And um, got all this blood work back. And what I found out was that I was actually pre-diabetic, high risk for a heart attack, and that the three cups of coffee that I was drinking every day combined with my genetic sensitivity to caffeine meant that I accelerated that risk for a heart attack by a thousandfold, right? So huge wake up call. And in my mind's eye, I still think I was like, I'm that triathlete guy, you know, even carrying 65 pounds more than I was before. And, um, it literally was a wake up call for me. So I sat down with some specialists, put all the biology, all of my results, um, on a table and just started working through this and, and ultimately crafted a personalized nutrition plan that addressed all of the different issues that I had and, and created a, a food plan that was really harmonious with my body. And after three months, I started feeling amazing. After six months, I had lost 25 pounds, had more energy than I had in years. And, um, and it was a huge aha moment for me, which is like, we actually, you know, in this country, you know, we, we struggle with weight. You know, it was like 40% of the country is ob- obese or morbidly obese. Type 2 diabetes is one of the fastest growing diseases in the country. And, um, and they're all foodborne illnesses. These are these are things that are preventable by getting the right food to people in the right way for them. And um, and yet in our industry, we take a one size fits all approach to food. You look around any room. You look at this office here, and you ask, should we all be eating the same food in the same way at the same time? 
And intuitively, you'd say no. Mm-hmm. And what's exciting is now science actually backs that intuition. I think entrepreneurs, as driven and you know, with self-discipline that they have, um, many entrepreneurs are subservient to their businesses, right? And as such, there's a mindset which is everything, everything that I have needs to go into this business for it to be successful. And I, I fundamentally believe that is true in part, where you, you have to have your heart and soul in this thing. But if you put your health on the line for your business, you'll never create a healthy company, nor will you be healthy yourself. And so, I, the, again, one of those epiphanies where I was like, yeah, I got I to gotta actually I gotta change something for me to be a healthy human, to be a healthy leader, and ultimately to have a healthy company. And so... So I was pretty motivated, but literally in that period of six months, I had seen a massive transformation and it started like after a week, you're like, Ugh, the first couple of weeks is pretty rough, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. Cause you're detoxing from right. a lot of things, right? Yep. Um, right? You know, caffeine, alcohol, bad food. I mean, right. they're all, you know, they're all substances in their own right. And right. you're detoxing from all these things. But after you get past that, then you start actually having food that's harmonious with your body. You start feeling really good. Mm-hmm. And then you start seeing actual results. And that's what I think that keeps the flywheel spinning. Mm-hmm. Um, so that inspired me to start a company called Habit, which is the world's first personalized nutrition company where we go from all the way from an at-home test where we look at your DNA, your blood work, and your metabolism to unlock the nutrition insights that live inside of each one of those aspects of you all the way to a personalized food recommendation to fresh prepared meals customized to your biology delivered to your door. So a full test-to-table kind of experience. We started the company about two and a half years ago, and um, and we have we're really one part life science, one part uh, technology, one part food. So we have scientists on staff, we have engineers, and we have foodies. I do have a number of plum folks that came over, that kind of in that foodie slot. You That's know, right. You know, we all were aligned around the purpose. You know, you know, our purpose is to unlock you know each individual's human potential through the power of personalized food. Um, and so everyone who comes to have it is, is inspired by that mission. Um, but, um, but the way scientists work and the way engineers work and the way foodies work, it's all very different, right? And so one of the things that we've been doing over the last two years is how do we, how do we create a rhythm and cadence of innovation, rapid development across all those areas while still respecting the need for, you know, and the time that required to make sure you have really sound, solid science, Right that you have a really good code yep. that's not going to you know, create code debt for your company, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? That we have really healthy food that really matches people's recommendations, right? And, um, and so when you think about it, we, we feel like we're building the company of tomorrow, mm-hmm. right? So we have, we're building, developing IP that goes from literally someone's biology all the way to a bowl of food that's personalized to them. And so everything you can imagine, all the algorithms and the network and the connection that makes that happen that takes a pretty unique team. So we've I've been I've been blessed with the idea that we actually now have an incredibly robust group of people across those three areas. So, but for a consumer who's using Habits product, how does it work? And yeah. w- walk us through that process. Yeah, there's four main components to Habit. So first, when you go on to Habit.com, uh, you can sign up to get Habit Core Test Kit, and that's a, a personalized nutrition test. So. This will ship to your home, and it'll have a cheek swab for your DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll prick your finger and drop four to six drops of blood onto a little card. Um, it's a fasting blood test, so you'll do it first thing in the morning. And then we have a metabolic challenge where you drink the shake, <laughs> and it's yeah. I always say it's like yeah. tough mutter for your metabolism, yeah. right? It's it's nine hundred and fifty calories. It's high sugar, high fat, um, and really what it does is it, it it challenges your system, and the response to that challenge 
is a measure of how well you metabolize fats, carbs, and proteins and food in general. Yeah. Right. And so, so after you drink the shake, we, we do your blood uh, another 30 minutes after and 120 minutes after. So just simple prick of the finger and a couple drops of blood, pack it all up, send it to our third party, CLIA certified lab in Memphis, Tennessee called Aegis. And they do all the toxicology for major league sports. Um, and then they'll send us back the results of your test and those get passed on to you in a, um, in a personalized dashboard. So really there's two parts to it. One is your, all the results of your test. And so it'll, it'll tell you how well you process carbohydrates, yep. what kinds of carbohydrates you should have for mm-hmm. optimal, um, efficiency, how well you process fats, proteins, any sensitivities that come out of your genes where, you know, lactose intolerant, caffeine sensitivity, things of that nature. So all of that will be in the insights that you get from your biology. And then on the other side of the ledger, it's all about a personalized nutrition plan. So think of this as the New York Times bestselling nutrition book customized just for you. So it gives you images of what your plate should look like, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Gives you principles to eat by, you know, so almost think about it like, you know, Michael Pollan-esque food food rules personalized to you. And then we get into things like, you know, servings of all the different uh, fruits and vegetables and proteins and uh, meats and things of that nature, all the way down to vitamins and mineral recommendations, right? So it's pretty comprehensive. Um, And we're just getting started. So we've got a whole pipeline of great digital features that we're going to be wrapping around that information. But but those first two things that we give you in your digital dashboard about empowering people with knowledge. One of the things is that we are all so unique and different. I mean, yep. that's just one of the, I mean, it's the founding principle of the company, but you see it, you know, every day in, in the people that come through habit. And, um, and, you know, it's interesting. We have some people that come to us because they want to solve a problem, you know, whether it's like, hey, I want to manage my weight, but I don't want to go on a diet. Mm-hmm. You, know, um, you know, I'm not feeling I have the energy that I need to, you know, have. There's other people, so those are, we call them the fixers, right? And then yep. there's some people that are like the managers, which are like, I know I could be more healthy. I want to lose five pounds. I want to, you know, clean up my diet. I just want to know what to do. I get feeds on these fad diets every day. I jump on them. I try them. I fail. I'm confused. Like, what gives? What's next for me, right? So those managers, you know, we help really dial it in for them. And then we have the optimizers, these are people that are like, all right, I got 5% left to really tweak and tune. You know, <laughs> yeah. I pioneered the goji berry, acai. Right. I got my game, That's but, right. I, but I want to know a little bit more about myself. Right. right. And so, um, and so, you know, and those are kind of really broad buckets of, you know, there's yeah. a lot of nuance of why people come to habit. But I think what's really cool is to see how we can help people with each one of those, you know, ways they interact with us. Right. And, um, and it's super fun. I mean, we had, we had one, um, optimizer that was like, you know, like, you know, like they come, wrote back and they're like, well, this is exactly what I do. And we're like, okay, well, how long did it take you to figure out <laughs> right. what to do? And they're like, well, it was a journey and it was about four years and <laughs> this, this, and this. And I'm like, okay, well, you should just pause for a second or yeah, reflect right. that what we provided you in a four week window was the equivalent of what you learned after oh, seven, four years. Yeah, four right. years of trial and error. Trial and error, right? And, right? and for many, like including myself, I mean, I've been tinkering with food all my life. Yeah. And this is the first time that I actually had, this reminds me of a story of Caitlin, I want to tell you this thing, but it's the first time that I've actually had confidence to know what foods are right for me. Right, yeah. So we had uh, one individual, Caitlin, who um, came to have it. She's a, she's a mother, a wife, breast cancer survivor. So Caitlin, for her, every, every food choice carries the weight of the world, as you can imagine. And, um, and she read and studied and she looked at literally every nutrition diet book on the market, trying to find her truth, you know, within all that. 
And so she got her habit test done and she, she sent us a photo and she posted it on Instagram where she took every one of her nutrition diet and nutrition books, laid them on the floor, took a photo, posted it on Insta and then said no more. She <laughs> nice. literally packed these things up, sent them off to Goodwill because it's the first time in her life she felt she had the confidence to know Knew yeah. for sure what foods were right for her. Yep. Yep. And um, that's the kind of thing we can do for people with habit. It's, so how do they put really it? So how do they put it in action after they they know have this data on themselves? Right. So they get these they get a personalized dashboard, and there's two things that we do to help people put it into practice. One is we have registered dietitians on staff, so with every test kit, you can get a 25 minute coaching session for free, where you can actually tell those folks what goals you have yep. and how you want to take this information and really tune it into a goal that you may you may want to accomplish. And then, um, and then the other thing in the Bay Area, we do fresh prepared meals, customized to your biology, delivered to your door. And how much do these meals cost for uh, for consumers? So meals range between you know eight and fourteen dollars, depending on the meal, all in with delivery. And how much is the test? Uh, the test is two hundred ninety nine dollars. Got it. Yeah. It's interesting the way that you even describe your business. It really is very much the convergence of there's technology, there's science, there's food. I mean, this is sort of the second business where you know you're you're starting up. Um, how do you think about fundraising when it's the amalgamation of three such different types of businesses? Yeah, well, it's, and this is a kind of another interesting story is that, um, so as I started working on this, Denise Morrison, the CEO of Campbell's, is very close, you know, we became very close um, through our journey. And, and as I was going through my health journey, she was going through her own as well. So she started prototyping with some of the things that I was prototyping with. And she had remarkable results as well. And while Habit is not a weight loss company, when you actually eat foods that are right for you, you shed weight. And right. so, and all kinds of good things come from that. Um, uh, and so through her journey, she lost 25 pounds as well. And so, um, she looks amazing. And, um, and you know, I think for, for her, she really saw this as the next wave of the future of food. And so when I started, you know, um, pulling together a business plan, Denise was right there and saying, I want to fund this. Mm-hmm. And so, um, Denise and Campbell soup have put $32 million into, into funding habit at this point. What, what challenges have come up along the way in this journey of, to scale? Yeah, I mean, one of, the, one of the biggest things is that marketing outside of the consumer packaged foods world is very different. Like, you know, a direct-to-consumer technology-based business, you know, has a different relationship, a different way of connecting into the consumers that it hopes to serve. And, um, you know, in some ways, when you have Target or Babies or Us or Whole Foods, like, your products are on the shelf and the, the interaction most of the time happens in that, you know, one to two feet between your product and that person and a little label talking about price and that kind of stuff. And then some meta brand communication direct to consumer is uh, marketing is more of a data business than it is anything else, you know? And so uh, one of the things I'm I'm most excited, I'm a brand guy, you know, I'm an ideas guy, a storyteller and, you know, um, which is great. And that's one part of building a direct consumer brand. But the other is actually knowing where and how to reach and connect with people. And that's a data business. So we've, just actually, I hired a guy named Rob Singer, who was the CMO of um, StubHub and Ancestry.com, to be our CMO at Habit, and he's a data guy, you know, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, and he's amazing. So he and I partnered together to to help really drive that direct consumer communication. You know, for some, two hundred ninety nine dollars is a lot to spend on their health. For others, it's like, wow, that seems really yeah, exactly. really cheap, right? right. You know, so. So it's being able to really, you know, over time have price points that are accessible to everyone. That's what I did with Plum when we first started. We, you know, we had buck seventy nine. Um, now we're available in seventy five percent of retailers, roughly around ninety nine cents mm-hmm. north of that at times. But um, 
you know, one of the, you know, one of the largest organic baby food brands in the country. And with that scale becomes accessibility. So, uh, and much like Plum, you know, we didn't skimp on the food, on the experience. We got it all. We wanted to make sure all of that was right. And then with scale, we worked on the price to make it accessible to more people. So we're doing the same in Habit. You know, the science is completely robust. We've invested heavily in making sure we have most cutting edge and grounded science on the market. Um, most amazing recipes and food that you can have. And really the most impactful and actionable coaching. Um, and so we've now built that infrastructure. So now it's about really scaling the business, driving cost efficiencies, and making it available to everyone in this country. Right after the break, we'll talk more with our guest, Habit founder and CEO, Neil Grimmer. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can catch up on all our episodes at unfinishedbiz.com and chat with us on Twitter at unfin underscore biz. Subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or any podcast app of your choice. Rate us, and even review us. We read them. It's a huge help. And now, back to our episode with Habits Neil Grimmer. So you've had very important roles at a, a number of different businesses, yeah. but kind of looking back on all of that, has there been a moment where you had a, a bet the company moment? Yeah, I mean, the bet the company moment for us was saying yes to Poly D, Babies <laughs> Are Us, and hockey sticking Plum Organics to be one of the largest baby food, uh, organic baby food brands in the country. Very fair. Well, it's never easy being an entrepreneur. Um, is there a particular low point that stands out in your mind in that journey? Yeah, I mean, look, I would say um, one of the low points was um, was right after we sold the company. My wife was diagnosed with breast cancer, and oh, um, and so sorry to hear that. Yeah, no, it was you know it, it's you know it's one of those things that grounds you, and and it you know it probably you know it scared us to our core, but we. Um, and part of my health journey was inspired by her health journey, you know, mm. and, um, and as she got healthier, I got healthier and, um, and we did it together and, um, and she's four years remission and, um, Congrats. she's stronger than ever. And so, um, you know, I would say that was a low point And one of the biggest regrets that I had was not spending more time with my family when I was building plum, you know, coming off of that in hindsight. Mm-hmm. And through the, a lot of that sacrifice have created a lot of high points and notable, Notable successes as an entrepreneur. Yeah. Is there one that really stands out in your mind? You know, I I actually think you know one of the highest points is the connections and the bonds that I made with everyone that I've worked with, both past and present. You know, it's it's at the end of the day, this journey is about people and impacting people's lives in no uncertain terms. Those that you serve, but the people you're doing it with, you know, become friends for life. And what's keeping you up at night? These days. Well, so uh, one of the things I, I actually, uh, this time around, I actually sleep well <laughs> by design, you know, right. a healthy amount of exercise, good food, and a little bit of melatonin before, before bed. Um, and actually, you know, to answer your question, um, you know, I actually do fundamentally believe to be a great leader, you have to be incredibly healthy and, you know, sleep is probably one third of the, the equations So what you eat, how much you move and how much you sleep are, are really the three things. Um, so uh, to answer your question, probably a little more directly, <laughs> you know, I, I think, look, you know, I what, what you know, what what I spend a lot of time thinking about is how to how to scale an incredibly complex, multifaceted business um, that in no uncertain terms is changing an in industry, but also the the rapid change in technology and infrastructure that's happening right now advances in human biology and technology, um, just staying on top of all of that and making sure that we're continuing to be the pioneer. 
Niels really covered it all. Bassist in a band, art school, high-profile design work at IDEO, Cliff Bar, Plum Organics, Campbell's Soup, and now Habit. And yet it's interesting to hear how relative the term success can be. If you aren't healthy, no amount of hustle is going to work long-term. Neil recognized that, turned his own health around, and that entrepreneurial spirit laid the foundation for what's become Habit. Good to know Neil hasn't forgotten his punk rock roots, though. Well, when you're not sleeping, working, <laughs> eating healthy, or working out, what, what, do, you, what do you do? Well, I, uh, I get copious amounts of tattoos. Uh, one, of the, <laughs> one, of, one of the funny things, when we sold the company, instead of like, you know, buying really expensive things, I actually found one of the best tattoo artists that I could find in, uh, in the Bay Area, a guy named Philip Millick out of uh, Old Crow Tattoo, and, and put my name on a two-year wait list. Oh, wow. <laughs> two years later, he called me. He must me. be good. Yeah. He's incredible, and, uh, and he's a true artist, and I turn, over, you know, I turn it over to him. So I've got about 60 hours of ink on me from... Uh, from him in particular. What's been the most painful part of your body? Oh, your elbow. Elbow? elbow. Oh, yeah. Really? For sure. Oh, it's horrible. Okay. Yeah, that's why this is... this. Elbow. Oh, you're right. Your elbow <laughs> stuff elbow is bare elbow. Yeah. I've, got, I've got one bare elbow. Exactly. You, you got <laughs> it'll, to... It'll be covered soon, but it, that's incredibly painful. And when you go, is it typically, you know, you trust him, you know, he, can, he, do, he does what he wants to do, is, or do you have an idea of, oh, this is exactly what I want? Early on, I came in with a set of ideas. Uh, what I've learned is he's a true artist, yeah. and I just turned it over to him. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really fun to work with him. He's an old punk rocker, too, and so. That's great. So is there a framework when you think about tats on, like, this is a certain area that I will never get a tattoo? Not particularly. Yeah? So neck, neck tat... I was thinking. Of, I was thinking face. Face. Yeah. I mean, look. I mean, there's obviously you know examples in the world. We got the, we got the Mike Tyson to lead us into the you know right. whether that's a good decision or not. Exactly. So. All right, Neil. Time for our signature game. It's a rapid fire question and answer. Some really serious, hard hitting stuff. You ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. The first thing that you read every day is New York Times. What's your favorite movie? Uh, James Bond, um, Spectre. Karaoke song you're most likely to belt out? Oh, uh, White Wedding. <laughs> your hometown is famous for? Uh, clams. What's your guilty pleasure? Uh, pepperoni pizza. First car you ever drove? Uh, Chevy 250 pickup truck. Runner-up name for your business that didn't make the cut? Paxton Quigley. <laughs> Do you recline on airplanes? <laughs> Absolutely. If you could drink one thing for the rest of your life besides water, what do you choose? Don Julio, 70. What was your last New Year's resolution? Stop drinking. If you were stranded on an island and you could only bring one thing, what would it be? Don Julio, 70. What's the last hashtag you used? (laughs) Hashtag tequila. (laughs) Where's the next place you'd like to travel? Uh, Well, I just got back from Mexico City. I'd like to go back there. Nice. If a movie was made of your life, you'd be played by? Oh, definitely Ryan Gosling. Talent you don't have, but wish you did. Um, better looks. What's your most hated food? Ooh, asparagus. Mm. If you could be any pro athlete, who would you be? Steph Curry. Political issue you care most about? Donald Trump. Favorite TV show ever? Ooh, um, Brady Bunch. During the last week, have you looked at your phone? Ooh. Is that, is hey, that- I was... So, Neil, that was pretty oh, solid, man. Yeah. I, I, you were not best of all time to date, but you were right up there. So maybe right. next time on our podcast. <laughs> Let's huh? do it. Let's do it. All right. So one last question before we let you go. Um, any words of wisdom for, for entrepreneurs out there who are kind of in the middle of it, in the thick of building their businesses? 
Yeah, so I, I think there's two. One is that make business personal, right? And, um, and the second one, and within that one, I, I think one of the mantras that I, I tell is actually on the wall at Plum is lead with heart, mm-hmm. which is make decisions about your business if your family and the planet depended on those decisions. The second one is fight the good fight. You know, anyone who's an entrepreneur is pioneering something new, new to the world. And there's going to be a lot of inertia and resistance and things mm-hmm. that get in your way. And you have to show up every day with that mission that you've got to be able to break down those barriers to get your business uh, to be able to serve the consumers you want to serve. Well, Neil, congrats on a kick-ass entrepreneurial journey today. And uh, thanks for joining us hey, on thanks. the podcast today. Thanks, Appreciate guys. It. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Unfinished Biz. I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We'll be back on the next episode with Bill Wyland, founder of Presence Marketing, who started a small regional food brokerage in the 90s and now runs an industry empire. Early on, I mean, we didn't really make money the first eight years. <laughs> and uh, I, I, that's where I came up with, like, you know, like the de- I know the definition of all in. Let me assure you, okay? That's next time on Unfinished Biz. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can subscribe to our show for free in any podcast app of your choice. Send us questions, comments, and feedback on Twitter at unfin underscore biz and visit us at unfinishedbiz.com.